Hello and welcome to The Stretch Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by international speaker and best-selling author, Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an author of eight best-selling business books, including his most recent publications, The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset and The Barcelona Way, Unlocking the DNA of a Winning Culture. He was appointed as a Professor of Organisational Psychology and Change for Manchester Metropolitan University in September 2010 and is the co-host of the High Performance Podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sport and the arts, exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. During our discussion, Damien shares how non-negotiable behaviours lie at the heart of high performance, the impact of cultural architects when sustaining change, and what Ant Middleton has taught him about personal resilience. We gained some brilliant insights from Damien's own recent interviews with the likes of Rio Ferdinand, Sir Chris Hoy and England rugby league coach Sean Wayne, as well as exploring the impact the global pandemic may have on high performance. This is a great episode to round off our first season, so if you enjoy this and our other discussions, please support our podcast by subscribing and rating our show on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. Be sure to check out the third season of Damien's own high-performance podcast, where you can hear discussions with the likes of Stephen Gerrard, Lily Cole and Sir Clive Woodward. Enjoy. So where did you make your start in the world of high-performance sport and organisational psychology, Damien? Well, um, I, I, so I, I've got quite an interesting background, Steve. So I think that that was my first introduction into uh, into both of those areas of high performance and and understanding the psychology of creating high performing environments. So uh, I grew up in uh, a boxing gym in Manchester. Uh, so before I was born, my dad had established a boxing gym uh, in the city, um, and like most people's perceptions of boxing gyms, they often um, are in quite tough urban inner city areas and this one was no different. So uh, uh, back in the early 2000s, the area was categorised as being Europe's third poorest ward, just to give you an idea of the sort of social context Mm. where, but the purpose behind the boxing club was that it was, uh, so my dad trained a number of guys that went on to become world boxing champions. There was a number of Olympic uh, medalists and yeah. things. And so people that had real success within the gym. So I saw the high performance element of what it took to perform at an elite level um, from a really young age. But what the interesting thing was, was that gym was also a sanctuary for a lot of people that just wanted to come and escape uh, quite difficult circumstances. Yeah. So there was lots of people that came in there that had never set foot in the boxing ring and had no intention of doing so, but they wanted to almost find a sanctuary from some of the challenges of life. And they were made just as welcome and made, and, 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 and embraced. Now, a nice coda to that was that uh, a few years ago, Manchester Council named the road in tribute to my dad uh, and the work that he'd done. And when they sort of unveiled the road and uh, they had the Lord Mayor of Manchester come down to do it, um, there must have been about 300 people that turned up. And I'd say that 90% of those people that turned up to pay tribute to my dad had never set foot in a boxing ring. Right. But they wanted to come and pay tribute to the impact that that culture and that environment had had on them as parents, as professionals, as partners, you know, and just as members of society. And I think when I sort of started going down the academic route of understanding around organisational psychology, one of the things that I mention is that uh, we often engage in what we call uh, me-search, not research, because we try to make sense of our life and our biographies. And I think as I got older and then reflecting back on that period of my life, I think I started to understand just how powerful culture was within there. So to give you a really simple example, like there was a series of really non-negotiable behaviours that people had to buy into. The moment you crossed that threshold, for example, you weren't allowed to come and use bad language. Now, it wasn't some kind of moral crusade of people being offended by bad language, but what the behaviour that people had to understand was, that indicated a lack of discipline. If you walked into an environment and you couldn't think of anything to say or do other than effing and blinding, 
um, that indicated a lack of discipline that you couldn't hold your tongue or find something else to say. Yeah. And in a boxing gym, a lack of discipline can have some quite serious consequences. Mm. So people understood that coming into um, that environment came with it, a really clear set of behaviours and an identity needed to assume, yeah. which is at the heart of organisational psychology, which is about creating a sense of purpose and a way of behaving once you come into it. Yeah. So I think those two areas, um, I was exposed to them at a very young age and I feel incredibly fortunate that they sort of piqued uh, an interest in me that I've been able to take into my own adult life. Because mm. the, the, the behavior, you know, the non-negotiable beha- behaviors and the culture that you talk about, you know, as somebody who's followed a lot of the books you've, you've written over the years, it's been a yeah. thread that kind of runs through all of them. I think I'm right in saying that it's, so it's, it's interesting that it started really early and that's been almost, you know, continued through all your work. Yeah. Well, I, so Part of the reason I talk about non-negotiable behaviours is because what I see in so many cultures or or relationships uh, within a working environment is ambiguity is the big enemy thing. So it's Mm. uh, that if if you walk past me one day and you choose to say hello because you're having a good day, but the next day you're having a bad day and you choose to ignore me, that then creates a... Uh, an ambiguity that I'm not sure where we stand. Does does that knowledge in each other yeah. is that is that unacceptable or is it acceptable that I can challenge you? Whereas if we can establish what those rules of engagement are between us at the start of the relationship or at the start of me joining your company, that then gives me a sense of certainty, and from that certainty allows me to then concentrate on delivering my very best behaviours. So ambiguity is often the enemy because we allow subjectivity to creep in we sort of turn a blind eye to it depending on individuals and there's lots of powerful reasons why that's the case yeah but the challenge is is to understand and identify those non-negotiable behaviors at the start of it so i've been working on a podcast series similar to what you're doing here steve where um called the high performance podcast where i've been interviewing a range of elite performers from sport and business and the arts. And I've been doing it with um, a friend and a colleague called Jay Comfrey. And that's one of the questions that we ask all of them. What are your three non-negotiable behaviours? And what we get is that there's there's an immediate response from pretty much everyone we talk about. And they're all um, very, very crystal clear in the answers that they're giving in terms of if you want to be a member of my team this is the stuff that i'm not prepared to trade on so we interviewed a guy called sean wayne who's the england rugby league coach yeah and one of his behaviors is just good manners and when you ask him why he goes because that indicates a respect that a respect that says i don't think i'm better than you i don't think you're better than me but we treat each other with a level of courtesy and respect that is just non-negotiable within his world now, he's been incredibly successful at developing high-performing cultures in the, in the rugby clubs that he's gone to, and the foundation of it is built on respect. And do you find, do you find that with the, the people you've interviewed, that they don't even have to think about those non-negotiable behaviours? They're just so in, ingrained that they can just articulate them straight away, or is there, is there a difference? Uh, I think they speaking? have thought about it, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think the point is that, that they've thought about it an awful lot, and then... They, uh, then a lot of their energy is spent in just maintaining them. Yeah, so yeah. we interviewed, say, Rio Ferdinand, and we were talking to him about the culture that he went into at Manchester United. Yeah, and he spoke about three non-negotiable behaviours that he that he experienced very quickly. He talks about uh, relentlessness, so you never settle. That you, you, you're constantly working on the next challenge, the next challenge. the The second one was courage. So you've got to play with courage, yeah. that you've got to take a risk. Sometimes it goes wrong, but risk-taking is part of courage. And then the third one is you've got to be a team player. You've got to put the team above your self-interest. Now, when we asked him where they'd come from, we said Alex Ferguson had laid them down in the culture 20 years before he even arrived there. So it was up to him to adapt and integrate into the culture that he'd done, and he feels that those behaviours are now a key part of his own success in life and beyond. So some of them um, have 
had to go away and learn these behaviours, but they've all had to reflect on them at some stage in their development to understand them. So I think another really neat example that when we interviewed Sir Chris High, yeah. um, and we'd arranged to meet him in Manchester, it was a really cold, wet day, and uh, we'd arranged to meet him at 10 o'clock, and at 10 to 10, there's a knock on the door. When we open it, Britain's greatest ever Olympian is stood there. <laughs> so we said, come in, Chris, you know, nice to see you. And uh, I just said to him, oh, thanks for being here early. It makes it a lot easier for us. And he was like, well, why would I not be here early? And I was like, well, I know we'd raised me at 10 o'clock. It's cold, it's wet. He was like, we've raised me at 10 o'clock. I'm here for 10 to 10. So I thought, this is an interesting response. So yeah. I thought it's a thread worth pulling. So I said, so I sort of explored it a bit more. And the essence of his answer was, he went, he said, if I show up late, that would indicate that I think my time is more important than your time, which would indicate that I think I'm more important than you. And he went, and that shows a lack of respect. It's arrogant. He said, that's just unthinkable. Yeah. Now, in that one anecdote there, if you if you sort of unpick it, you go, you've got a guy there that is respectful and humble. You've got somebody that is committed and is dependable. Yeah. So you go, did those three characteristics lie at the heart of his success of winning the eight Olympic gold medals? I'd argue, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Given that he had a base level of talent, but the fact that he had humility to want to learn, yeah. He was, he was, he was committed when he trained. He gave it everything, and then he was dependable. If he said he was going to race at a certain time, he would deliver on that time. Yeah, that's what you want. So, I think it's there's no coincidence. I would say that all elite performers, whether this is individuals or whether this is people that are part of teams or cultures, are really, really gimlet-eyed in terms of knowing. These are the standards of behaviour yeah. that we're not prepared to compromise on. And then what that allows people to do is, if you think of that term commitment, commitment implies a choice. Now, you might go into a culture where you go, this isn't for me, and that's fine. Maybe it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you're not in a place where you're going to thrive. Yeah, yeah. Whereas for other people, when they get in there, they go, this is exactly what I need. And therefore, they're more likely then to go on and focus and thrive within that environment. Yeah. And that, that's the bit I find really interesting, whether, as you say, whether it's in the world of sport or the world of business, it's that because there's a lot of talented people out there. You know, there are a lot of talented cyclists and footballers and rugby players and business people. Yeah. But what separates the ones who become really successful is the deliberate the deliberate practice they put in place for not just the sport or the technical or the skill thing they're doing, but how they go about doing it, which is, as you've articulated, the kind of behaviour side of things. Well, I, I was reading over the weekend, um, Arsene Wenger's got a book out, and he uses a great phrase. He talks about invisible training. So the invisible training is the stuff that happens, not on the field. Yeah. So it's about how you prepare, how you live your life, how you, how you, um, how you prepare your diet, your nutrition, and things like that. And I would argue the invisible training stuff is exactly what we're talking about here, yeah. that yeah. the behaviours that you do in your private life will manifest themselves in your... Uh, when you come under pressure yeah. so if, if you're if you get into the habit of making excuses or pointing the finger or or uh, you know blaming other people when you come under pressure that then becomes the default habit that your brain takes a path of least resistance yeah. you demonstrate those same behaviors yeah so it's about breaking unhelpful habits and forming some helpful ones ideally uh, sometimes it can be, but mm. I'd say the, the, the key bit, Steve, is just st there's a really nice exercise I encourage anyone to do if they're listening to this and say, think about your best moments, think about your best successes, think about your biggest achievements, and don't, and rather than think about the outcome of what you achieved, break it down into how did you achieve it. So yeah. not what did you do, but how did you do it? What yeah. were the behaviors that were present when you were successful? And that's your starting point to then go, right, so then start looking for evidence and say, when I've demonstrated these behaviours, what tends to happen in my world? And you'll find that there's a correlation between some of them, that whenever success occurs in your life, these behaviours are present. And then the challenge is, how do, you, how do you get more of these occasions where you show up in the way that yeah. defines success for you? As well as interviewing and speaking 
to you know elite sports performers you you get involved and have been involved in helping teams create these cultures and behaviors uh, you know in recent memory you know the Scottish uh, rugby uh, union team and, and things like that so just for our listeners just tell us a little bit about your direct involvement in sport if you wouldn't mind Amy. yeah so I, so to put it in some kind of context I, I work across quite a wide range of organizations so I do uh, a little bit of the corporate world I do stuff in education but I also do uh, work in elite sport and I tend to work alongside coaches of teams that want to create high performing cultures is the challenge that they want. So it's not just about winning, it's about how do you build a culture yeah. that can win and then sustain it. Yeah. So based on my experiences over the years, I've been doing this for um, a long time. So uh, about over 15 years of working in elite sport. So I've made an awful lot of mistakes along the way uh, <laughs> doing that. And I think based on those mistakes, what I realize is that my work can be uh, more effective if I work with the coaches uh, pretty much exclusively. And the reason I say that is that, say if I go and stand up in front of a room full of rugby players, if I stand up and start uh, making suggestions, at best I reckon I'll get about 70% buy-in from the room. Right. That they might respect you or they might think that your ideas have got merit. But there'll be around 30% of the room that go, what do you know about rugby? Yeah. And therefore, I fall down on the credibility gap that I'm in their world and I don't understand enough about their world for them to buy into it. Yeah. Whereas if I can work with a head coach who can stand up and deliver the same messages with my support, I reckon he'll get 90% buy-in yeah. because he's got the credibility and he also wields influence that he picks a team or not. So based on that, I tend to work with leaders, whether that's in sport or in business, that are almost equip them with the skills to be able to go and create high-performing cultures. And then my role after that is to almost be uh, a support for them. So I become another pair of eyes and ears that I can support them and observe them and see what's happening and maybe intervene yeah. um, where necessary. But that's very much the role that I do. So like you say, last um, three years I've been working with uh, Gregor Townsend yeah. on the coaching staff for the Scotland Rugby Union team. Uh, I've been working out in Canberra in the NRL with the Canberra Raiders as well. And then over the years I've worked across a range of sports. From, uh, I worked with Tracy Neville with the England Roses netball team yeah. through to um, organisations like football teams in the Premier League and Super League and the, and the rugby premiership as well yeah well if you ever fancy giving Newcastle United a hand you know we could probably do it <laughs> <up there. laughs> but um, it, it, it's always held up um, you know elite sports that the, the lessons from elite sports are always used as the kind of metaphor analogy for business yeah. right it's been you know it's, it's been around for a long time and it continues and a lot of that's really really useful because it gives you a even though it's a different context and a different environment, it gives you something to kind of get a hold of and, and articulate this the, the, this type of stuff. But having been working with sport as close as you have, what 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 is sport's Achilles' heel? Do you think you know what could what could sport do better in terms of it, it creating these high performing cultures? Do you think? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I'd say I'd say I'm familiar with you. Uh, as you are, Steve, around this idea of sport is often used as a metaphor for business mm. and mm. things like that. And I urge anybody, when it, so whenever I hear that, I cringe a little bit because I think I think the parallels get get forced together more than what they necessarily are. So I get why people do it, but sport is pure in many ways that you know who wins and you know who loses. Yeah, and that's why. So it, so it's quite easy to go look at the winners and go, ah, oh, it's because they do this. But business isn't like that. Business isn't as clear-cut as that uh, in organisations. And so that's one difference that I think makes it um, a little bit more ambiguous or vague. But there's other differences as well that I think are pretty significant and why the, the analogy of sport into business doesn't work. The second reason I'd give is that the way people will often speak to each other within the sporting environment, whilst it might be acceptable within that kind of context, just wouldn't be tolerated within uh, 
any other contacts or outside of that world. Yeah. So, so some of the conduct of people within it um, is very different. And then the second thing, and then the third thing I'd say is that there's some practices that go on within the sports environment that employment law just so employment law wouldn't allow that yeah. to happen yeah. you know the way that they speak to each other and quite right as well yeah but then the third thing sorry to emphasize is that there's uh, you can drop people you can get rid of people a lot easier in professional sport yeah. than employment law would allow you to do mm-hmm. within uh, an organization so i think those three differences in terms of the winning and losing is clearer the conduct is very different that is seen as more acceptable within sport and the punitive measures of being able to get rid of people at the end of contracts or drop them mm. mean that the parallels between sport and business fall down there yeah. and there alone i think the things that we have in common is an area that i'm lucky enough to work in where i say i don't work in sport i work with people that work within the industry of sport. Mm-hmm. And I think the people elements of what we're describing are just as similar. I think people working under pressure, people having to create a cohesive team in a diverse organisation, I think communication and making sure there's an alignment of messages. I think all of that, there's lots of things you can learn from the world of sport, but equally I think sport can learn from the world of business. Yeah. Um, because we're talking about people here, the industry might be different, but the people elements the same. Mm. So that's how I'd argue. In terms of what sports Achilles heel, mm. um, I think sometimes um, sport can be quite slow to recognise the benefit. I think because people take sport and the analogies from there and, and then take them outside of sport, I'm not always sure that it's a two-way process. I'm not sure sport takes business practices mm. and embraces them as readily as it happens the other way around. Yeah. Hi everyone, Stephen Brown here, host of The Stretch Podcast. We hope you're enjoying this episode and just wanted to remind you that you can listen to more great discussions in this first season by searching or subscribing to The Stretch Podcast. We've talked business and personal growth with author Steve Coulson, creativity with artist Paul Merrick, women in business with Emily Cox, MBE, and even what it's like to run a Premier League football club with former Newcastle and Sunderland Chief Executive Steve Walton. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. You've touched on something there that I was going to ask you and go back to what you said before around you know, standing up in front of a group, whether it's Gregor Townsend with the Scotland rugby team or whether it's, you know, whoever it might be, getting that sort of, you know, wanting to do something different, um, trying to get engagement and you might get 90%. I I guess when you're trying to change a team or a group or even the entire organisation's culture, then buy-in, obvious statement of the day, buy-in is pretty important. So how, in in your opinion, whatever context you care to, to think about really, sport or business, what does it take to really impact that group's culture? Do you think? Wow, that's a really good question. I think first of all, I think so. I think to answer the question, you need to understand well what type of culture do you want. So mm. the reality is, when we start back from this, say, well, there are different types of cultures that can exist within an organisation. So in some organisations, they can have a, like an autocratic culture. Yeah. And that's where you've got a leader that just sets a tone and it's my way or the highway. So you might get that, say, in the startup business where you've got the founder or you might have, in a slightly bigger business, you might have a charismatic chief exec. That So that can be one type of culture. Another type of culture is a star culture where you just rely on some superstars that deliver results. Yeah. And it tends to be about keeping them happy. You might have a bureaucratic culture, which is about middle managers. And it, this is about everyone are playing by the rules and the regulations that you have. And engineering culture is another type where it's about, have you got the skills to do the job? Yeah. You're recruited to do a specific job and we just need to make sure that your skill set can execute that. But when we talk about a good culture, a high-performing culture, the academic lingo for that, Steve, is um, a commitment culture. And a commitment culture is what's our purpose so what we're working towards and making sure that everyone's bought into that and then it goes back to the first question about what are our behaviors 
what are our non-negotiable behaviours. So I think that has to be the starting premise, yeah. that you have a really clear sense of direction and a set of rules about how you intend to get there. And I think what that allows people to do is you can have people that will opt in or you can have people that opt out. Yeah. So again, to go back to the podcast, we did an interview with a, a guy called Mauricio Pochettino, yeah. who was the head coach of Tottenham. And he's really clear about his non-negotiable behaviours. He talks about you have to bring positive energy into an environment. You have to have the right attitude. So you have to be able to take responsibility for setbacks. And then the third thing is you've got to be a team player. Now, what he said is that's he's not prepared to compromise on those. But he had a really neat way of describing it. He said, but if that's not for you, that doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you're going to work in an environment where we're not going to get the best out of you. Yeah. So he said, so we need to maybe consider how we find the right environment for you to go to. But you, but accept that you probably won't fit or be successful within yeah. our environment. So I think... You, by starting on the direction and the how you intend to get there, that allows people then, if they sign up to come on board with you, there's almost like there's a there's a transparency, yeah. a consistency that's at play, which you need to have. Another element you need to have is give people the skills to be able to cope with adversity because this isn't a linear straight line. When you're trying to make progress towards anything that's challenging, there's going to be bumps along the way. Yeah. So you need to give people that, like, there's a study called the Ebbing House Curve of Forgetting that says, what do people remember about any kind of project? And they remember the start and they remember the end. And then they'll remember the worst moment in the middle. Right. So you need to almost have a plan in place that says, how are you going to handle? I call them oh shit moments, the moments <laughs> where the roof falls in on you. Yeah. And how you respond at those moments will help define the culture. So you need to have a sense of um, understanding what that looks like. And then you need the role of um, cultural architects is the phrase I use. Yeah. These are your leaders without title. Yeah. These are the people that, that run the show for you, that they don't necessarily need the title of being a leader, but they just identify with what you're trying to do. Yeah. And they will defend the culture uh, regardless of, of being popular, they'll really defend it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think, so they're just some of the elements that I'd argue have to be present for success to uh, uh, to follow. The, the role of architects are the people that work in the shadows in many ways. So if you think about when you make a decision, so, it, it, so when you're in the workplace, there's two ways that you make a decision. Say you see somebody behaving in a way that doesn't fit the culture. Maybe they're gossiping about a colleague. Yeah. One way you might make a decision what to do is you make a cost versus benefit analysis. You go, right, do I, do I feel like I've got enough to be able to challenge them, to disagree, to, uh, to do this? And if it comes down on the side of I probably don't feel confident enough, you turn a blind eye to it and you pretend that you didn't hear them gossiping. Yeah. The other way that you make a decision is you do – you do it through identity and identity asks three questions. You say, who am I? What's the situation? What would somebody like me do in this situation? So you're not worried about being popular. You just say, hey, that's not acceptable. That's not what we agreed there. Yeah. So you're not worried about popularity. You're worried about doing the right thing. Yeah. Now, the reality is you need to have in any organization people that do the right thing rather than the popular thing. And yeah. these are your cultural architects and you need enough of these that are doing this in the shadows. Because the phrase I sometimes use is, it's like you're building the culture brick by brick, story by story, moment by moment, is what defines it. So there's a rugby coach called Ben Ryan that says um, that, that, uh, that what you permit within an organisation becomes the standard. So if you choose to walk past those colleagues gossiping, and say nothing, you permit it, and therefore that becomes the standard. So yeah. cultural architects are your eyes and ears when, when nobody else is watching in many ways. Yeah, interesting. You've written extensively on leadership. Just to ask you about leadership, you know, from books about Alex Ferguson to Pep Guardiola, his time at Barcelona um, in the football world, obviously. 
So from from all these people that you've studied and 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 you know spent time writing about and, and being around, what do you yeah. think? You know, in in the context of twenty twenty, where we are, <laughs> which is a very volatile and ambiguous time to say the least, but just just where we are in twenty twenty, what do you think it takes to be an effective leader? Wow, that's a brilliant question. Um, this. So if we had to nail it down to the, uh, the priorities, I'd say emotional intelligence is a key is a key characteristic yeah. of effective leaders at this moment in time that, you know, everybody's world has had to change massively um, for, for better or worse, but it's changed regardless of it. And I think emotional intelligence gives us the capacity to acknowledge that, that change, to yeah. understand that some people find it difficult and then to be able to move at their pace rather than just make demands of people regardless of it. So um, I'll give you a neat story. Many years ago, um, I, I, I went to Detroit to a boxing gym in Detroit while I was doing some research for a book and I met a guy called Emmanuel Stewart. And the boxing gym I went to visit was in a really tough, deprived part of a deprived city. Um, and when I got there, I was feeling quite nervous and Manny Stewart sort of met me and he said, uh, he said, Damien, how do you feel coming here? And I thought he was being polite, so I gave him a polite answer. I said, oh, I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. He said, that's really kind. He said, now tell me the truth. <laughs> and his demand sort of opened up and I started saying to him, I feel nervous. I, you know, I know you're busy. I don't want to get in your way. I appreciate how much um, you've got on your plate and things like that. Yeah. And when he sort of finished, he said, thank you for being honest. He said, that now means me and you can do some really good work together. And when I got to know Manny a little bit better, I asked him about what that approach he'd taken on the day that I met, because I don't, I didn't flatter myself and assume he was doing that just for me. And he summed up emotional intelligence in three really succinct words. He said, he said, when I work with anybody, I work on the basis of contain, then explain. Okay. And what he means by that is, this is emotional intelligence. He says, I need, he said, I can't start making demands of you until you know that I care about you, that I'm interested in you, that I know your story, mm. that I understand how you're feeling, that you trust me, that you feel safe with me. He said, so there's no point in me saying to you, go and do this until we've established that. So he says, his description of contain is, I've got to spend time getting to know you and the person you are before I can then start to explain how we're going to work together. Yeah. But those that suffer with with a lack of emotional intelligence, they do it the opposite way. They explain and then contain. Right. They tell you what you've got to do and then try and convince you to give a shit about you afterwards, afterwards. if you've done it or not. Yeah. And it doesn't work in that order. Emotional intelligence is contain, then explain. Yeah. You know, there's a quote in there, I think it's from Mayor Angelo, that says, people don't know how much you care or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And I think that that sums up Manny Stewart's contained and explained element. So I'd say that that has to be the starting point yeah. for any leader, especially in sort of turbulent, uncertain times that we live in. Yeah. And it would, um, I mean, it would be remiss not to talk about COVID and the impact it's had on the global yeah. economy, obviously. Um, how, how do you see it affecting, you know, either a, a an individual level or a team level, how do you see COVID impacting high performance? I think, it, again, I think it's a really fascinating question. The answer is, I don't think, I think what, I mean, on a personal level, I, I think that we were talking off air before we started recording. Mm. Um, I think it's been a brilliant reminder of the fundamentals of life. Um, so I know you've got two little ones. Uh, yeah. My two are slightly older than yours. Um, but before we became parents, my wife and I realised how little we knew about about parenting. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, we went on a parent skills course quite early on because we were thinking, we don't know what we don't know. Let's go and find out. Yeah. And the reality was this course was brilliant in its simplicity. They did a really simple exercise where they said, Think back to your own childhood and write down your best memories. So we did that and the other people on the course did it. And then the facilitator on the course said, what do you notice about it? And uh, when we looked at the list, there was like a wide variety, but there was two things that stood out. 
One, the activities you remember didn't cost a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was like things like playing in the park, climbing trees, things like that. And then the second thing was your mum and dad were present. So you remember the occasions where your mum and dad were there with you. Yeah. When you think of your own childhood. And I was reminded of that quite early on when we went into lockdown. That I thought, well, you can't do all like you know, there's not there's not a lot you can do other than you can go for walks together. You yeah. can do quite simple things. Yeah. And also as well, they put the the sort of change the diaries and commitments meant that you could be there as well. And I thought it was a time to embrace some of the simple things in life on a really personal level that I found really, really quite powerful and quite humbling in many ways. Yeah. But in terms of what it's going to mean on a grander scale, I think I think it's going to force us all to to think. And thinking is uncomfortable. We don't like thinking. So I, I use, sometimes use a, an analogy that say. Have you ever been on holiday to places where you go abroad and people don't speak English? Yeah. And you see the typical Brit abroad trying to order a drink at the bar. <laughs> and the bar staff don't understand them. Yeah. You tell me, Steve, how does the typical Brit abroad deal with that communication difficulty? They basically just say it a bit louder normally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They do two things. They either speak louder or slower. Yeah. Now, as you're watching them... Do you think they become more comprehensible or more obnoxious in the process of it? Yeah, certainly the latter, I would say. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so I think that people that are going to try and do that work in the same way in this COVID world that they were doing before it are the equivalent of the Brit abroad trying to order a drink in their own language. Yeah. That you're just shouting louder and speaking slower, but you don't become more efficient. You just become more obnoxious. Yeah. So I think it's going to force us to go back to first principles and think about how we do what we do and how we do it. Now, that'll be different for every industry. Yeah. But whoever can think fastest it will be the ones that will emerge from this, the ones that are not just going to keep banging the same drum, yeah. but go back and think about thinking, are the ones that are going to thrive in this post-COVID world. Yeah. And I guess, to you know, Something that is is required from anybody, I guess, I guess literally anybody, but certainly somebody trying to lead a team or a group through all of this resilience would be pretty a useful trait too, um, and and being able to look after one and one's well being and also the well being of the team. Yeah, it, it's something that we we spend a lot of our time talking to people about, you know, whether through coaching conversations or group conversations about resilience and well being and, yeah. and all things of that nature. So what what what's what what do you what do you think is the best way to maintain a sort of high level of well being, wellness, personal resilience? Because I guess a lot of people will be, as you say, thinking about that type of thing at the moment. It'll be challenged sure. in a different way. Well, when I hear people talk about resilience, um, I'm, I, I often pause for reflection and say, I've yet to meet anyone that needs to be resilient in the face of kindness, right. decency, yeah, and empathy, yeah. I've never met anyone say, oh, I need to arm a plate myself against somebody treating me with understanding and <laughs> dignity. But I've met lots of people that need to be resilient in the face of dealing with dickheads or dealing with yeah. difficulty or dealing with people that are unkind or, yeah. or unsympathetic. So I think if we start from that premise of are you surrounding yourself with people that behave with decency and empathy, or are you surrounding yourself with an environment of unkindness and, and, and a lack of sympathy? So have a look at the environment you're in, first of all, because yeah. I think that's that's a really interesting place to start when it comes to resilience. Um, and when I talk about kindness as well, I'd, I'd, I'd level that as at how you treat yourself. Yeah. That I think that whether you're kind to yourself or whether you're berating yourself or beating yourself up again is a really interesting um, premise to uh, to look at because yeah. I think when you come at the world with a lens of kindness there's a uh, I think what follows from that is a natural resilience that we all have to be able to handle things um, a lot better so that would be the first place I'd start with. Yeah. And then secondly, I'd accept that I'd spend time do, um, 
again, I'll go back, I'll reference one of the podcast interviews we did. Yeah. We interviewed um, a guy called Ant Middleton that was a former oh, yeah. SAS soldier. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, he's on like Channel 4 and programs like that. That's right, yeah. And one of the premises that he spoke about was um, conducting pre-mortems. Was like, what does that mean? Right. Yeah, it was like before they ever went on a on a um, a mission. Yeah, he said to avoid post mortems, we would conduct pre mortems, so they would look at what could kill this mission, what could what could go wrong that could get us killed. Yeah, and what the evidence says is, if you make the time to think about how you're going to handle these difficult moments, we referenced it early on in the interview as oh shit moments. Yeah, but. If you look at how you're going to handle those moments, what evidence says is you can improve your resilience to difficult moments by about 33% right. simply by anticipating them. Yeah. So first of all, kindness, and then secondly, anticipate difficult moments and just work out a plan in your head of how you're going to handle them. Yeah. They're two simple ways in which you can improve and develop resilience. Yeah, and there's things that just anybody can do, aren't there, basically? What you've just described, anybody can just sit Absolutely. And do it. So we talked about high performance and I just want to get a bit more specific in terms of teams, high performing teams, because they're, you know, they're pretty rare, actually, is, is my reflection on it. You know, not every team is high performing. It might be good and it'll get the job done. But when we're talking about real high performing teams, they tend to be quite rare in my experience. And it's obvious, really, when you think about it, the variables that are at play, people's different preferences, the behaviors, beliefs, attitudes, all the things that a group of people bring together. Yeah. So what have you found, you know, when we're really focusing on teamwork that are like the foundational, <clears throat> excuse me, the foundational things that get a group to not just exist together in an office, but to really kind of knock it out of the park, so to speak? Yeah, um, psychological safety, they're two words yeah. that um, are easy to bandy around, but require an awful lot of investment. So the phrase comes from the work of Amy Edmondson. She was an organizational psychologist that, in the early 90s, she was studying um, uh, healthcare uh, departments. So she's going into hospitals predominantly. And she was looking at what makes a high-performing hospital and what, um, and what stops it. And one of the things that she discovered quite early on in her analysis was the best-performing hospitals had the highest near misses or recorded incident rates. Right. Which, on the surface, you go, well, hang on, how can they be a high-performing hospital and yet they have so many errors yeah. and mistakes and cock-ups in them? Whereas a, a worst-performing hospital had nowhere near those same levels of, um, of reported near misses. So that was what led her to start pulling that thread a little bit more. And what she discovered was the best hospitals had the highest reported misses because of this term psychological safety. Right. That when you made a cock-up or a mistake... You could put your hand up and admit it yeah. without worrying about the consequences of being disciplined or being sacked or people uh, hammering you for doing it. So therefore, you could learn faster, get smarter, and implement better performance. The worst performing hospitals, people were afraid to put their hand up and admit a mistake because of the consequences or the feared consequences. So instead, you'd keep your head down, you'd point the finger at other people, and you'd look to apportion blame elsewhere. So I think if we start from the premise that mistakes are going to happen, yeah. have you got an environment where people feel safe enough to put their hands up and admit it, yeah. and therefore the organisation and the team can learn faster and smarter than a team where people look to prevaricate or to point the finger? So I think though that that's a starting point for all high-performing teams, yeah. which is this idea of um, psychological safety. Um and I think so many things, almost it's like a spring where so many things flow from it. So you get, uh, on the basis of that, you get a level of trust. Yeah. So when a leader can therefore hold their hands up and say, I made a mistake here, that develops a level of trust with the rest of the team that say, I'm safe to make a mistake here because the leader has already confessed it. So trust is a consequence of psychological safety. Yeah. Uh, learning is a consequence of psychological safety. Yeah. So all of these things are easy to dismiss, that they almost go, oh, yeah, this is about group hugging, this is about <laughs> doing high fives, this yeah. is all the soft skills. Yeah. But in my experience, without the soft skills, you don't get to deliver the sustained hard um, 
the hard results yeah. that high-performing teams have. So I'd say that a lot of teams that don't achieve sustained high performance is because they don't value these softer skills as much as teams that do achieve this uh, the sustained levels. Yeah, it, it it almost makes me wince when you get you know people who are so concerned with what they call the hard stuff to call it the soft stuff because for me the, all the stuff you've just described is the stuff that's bloody hard to get right there's nothing soft about it really yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah but, but but it can be intangible in so many ways Stephen. that's yeah. where the problem is yeah. you say so how do you measure this how do you quantify it and because you can't see it on the spreadsheet it's easy to yeah. to denigrate it or, or or devalue it and yet like you say you go into a high-performing team, you can just feel it. Yeah. You just feel, hang on, there's something happening there. Similarly, I'm sure you made reference to it earlier, you go into a toxic culture, you can't explain why it's toxic, but it's something quite visceral. Yeah. You just know you're in an environment that yeah. doesn't feel particularly healthy. So these are things that can't necessarily be quantified in terms of hard measures, but actually they precede the uh, the numbers yeah uh, that follow. Um, so just taking into account the many people you you know your work has led you to meet over the years, who yeah. surprised you the most and why? Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, oh wow! Um, I think what I think. To uh, like somebody like Sir Alex Ferguson is a really good example because I think if you look at uh, him from the outside, I think the media perception of him is that he was a bully, that he was a, like the hairdryer, is yeah. that patented phrase of him yeah. screaming and bawling people out. Um, I think the sort of tyrannical figure standing on the touchline pointing at his watch is sort of like a media caricature. But it's easy to forget that it is a caricature because if you if you were to believe that perception of him being a tyrant and a bully, you'd also have to accept that he defied millions of years of evolutionary psychology to be able to still deliver twenty six years of sustained success yeah. by doing that. And I think what my experience of sort of meeting him and being around people that knew him a lot better than I did was. They talk about decency, respect, humility, understanding. And these are all things that don't look good as a newspaper headline. Yeah. And they don't sell many, um, many newspapers on the back of it. There's not many anecdotes to be told about him being kind or decent or empathetic. Yeah. But the reality is that was the experience of people that worked for him within that culture. So it was a good reminder for me that sometimes that you need to look beyond the headlines mm. to find out more about an individual. So it's a bit of an easy answer to give, but it's one that I think there's an eternal truth that lies at the heart of it. Yeah. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't listen to headlines or just what people will tell you. Try and find out yourself and try and, and, try and dig a bit deeper. Yeah. Absolutely. I think most people listening will be surprised to hear an empathetic, kind Alex Ferguson for the reasons you've just said, because all we hear is the complete opposite. But uh, Well, I mean, I, I remember uh, somebody sort of saying that to me about it once when I, I, I was sort of reflecting on it. And it's like, well, the obvious question is, do you believe everything you read in the newspaper? And I think most people go, well, no, I don't, except that there might be some mistruths or yeah. it might be exaggerated. And you go, well, why? So why... Well, how can you say that then and then still maintain that your view of him is right based on yeah. that little sliver that you see on a Saturday afternoon or whenever you're watching the football? Yeah. Just a final question, Damien, in terms of your agenda. What, what's the next big thing you're, you're looking forward to next in, in your journey? Yeah, um, I've been working on this podcast series, the High Performance Podcast. Um, so we started it last year, and we the third series launches uh, next week. Yeah. Um, and on the basis of that, what that's led me to do is to we've done now over fifty of these interviews with elite performers, and yeah. it's led me to start looking at pulling together a book based on the ideas behind it because I think there's there's some great anecdotes 
that these people share that yeah. uh, from their worlds. But I, I'm trying to sort of distill it down to, well, how can anybody listening to that or picking up a book and reading it, how can they take their lessons and apply them in their own world? So that's what I spent a lot of lockdown doing, sort of going through the notes and yeah. trying to um, find some um, some replicable skills that people can take away from it. So that's been taking up a lot of my time at the moment, as well as doing the interview. So I, I tell you, I'm immersed in the research stage of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's just that we're putting the research out there as podcasts yeah. <laughs> every uh, every week as well. So yeah. people can hear the research themselves, but I'm trying to dig a bit deeper. Yeah. So that's taking up a lot of time at the moment. Um, and another big thing for me is just trying to um, keep some of those truths that I spoke about, the lockdown initially in COVID. Yeah. Uh, it forced me to, to do a bit of a reappraisal about the speed at which I was living my life and mm. what was really important for me. So I'm trying to get a better balance that allows me to be kinder to myself yeah. and to the people that, that really matter in my life, um, as well as doing the stuff like I just described that I still find really stimulating and enjoyable. So that seems like it's a constant high wire act of trying to get that balance right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Damien, it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the no, time no, to share your insights. I know that I know um, the quality of the work that you do, Stephen. Uh, I'm, I was really grateful that you invited me on. So thank you for having me and thanks for asking such really incisive, uh, stimulating questions for me. Brilliant. Thanks, Damien. Thank you.